Hello, Dave. I must warn you that due to human error, the following podcast contains spoilers for the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. You have been warned. Welcome to Diabolical, the show where four long-suffering friends dissect film's most dastardly schemes and try to improve them. I'm your host, Adam, and this week's movie is the sci-fi classic 2001 A Space Odyssey. So, dear listeners, sit down calmly, take a stress pill, and let's get diabolical. Greetings, and welcome to this week's pod. Joining me, as always, are my friends and fellow podcasters in the guise of the panel of peril. So, guys, please introduce yourselves and tell me, in your opinion, which is the most terrifying film AI concept or character? Hello, I'm Gaz, and my most terrifying AI concept film or character is Lee Winnell's film upgrade where it is a an ai chip implanted in the back of a paraplegic's neck to enable him to to move again and all does not go well Mm. no spoilers here because it may or may not be on my list but yes it's 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 a good film though i've seen it that's that's a spoiler in itself surely (laughs) i said may or may not Oh, yeah. <laughs> I left it open-ended. Yeah. <laughs> we can just discuss the finer details perhaps at a later date, but yeah, it is a very enjoyable film, that one. Or perhaps not. <laughs> Greg, oh, sorry, beg your pardon. You're uh, looking rather suave and sophisticated today, Count Tacular. Please tell us your uh, your choice. Count Tacular here. No, I can't do that voice. <laughs> hey, it's uh, Count Tacular here. <laughs> My... What is it? My AI that I think is scarier than any other AI, and it's a character, or it's a it's a concept, or it's a film, or something. Is there not not a more succinct way you could say that? I don't think there is. <laughs> uh, mine is Skynet from the Terminator series, and I think the reason for that is that has always been such a believable concept to me that if an mm. AI became self aware the first thing you would think is these humans need to be wiped off the face of the earth. That's the uh, the classic. Like wiping a snotty nose. Yes. Or a shitty ass. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you think. <laughs> it does. It really, really does. <laughs> While the ass is still shitting. Oh, no, I've got it all over my hand. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and that is your Turner's metaphor for the time war that unfolds in the Timothy series. <laughs> oh no, it's gonna still on my hand. Now it's on my other hand. Oh, I'm gonna need some wet wipes now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's in my eyes. I wish I'd just used a B day. <laughs> but it has given me the idea for liquid metal. Oh. <laughs> ben here. And my most terrifying film AI concept or character is David. Haley Joel Osmond's character in AI. <laughs> Freaky as fuck. I was going to say, I think you're probably uh, uh, very alone in that opinion, I would have thought. Because he nearly drowns that kid. He's just got no emotions on his face. It's freaky. He's got the emotion mm. of eating too much asparagus or whatever it is. Whoa. Spinach, is it? Spinach, yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. The opposite of Popeye. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't take skinny more. Is what he says <laughs> as he shuts down. Gug <laughs> <laughs> is what his brother says when he drowns him in the pool. Does he? Uh... <laughs> Hello, Adam here, uh, and my favourite AI concept or character is from the film Demon Seed, and the AI is called Proteus. If you haven't seen it, basically it's a scientist creates this uh, artificial intelligence and then realises it's all going to shit, shuts him down, locks him in the house, and then the AI manages to wake up, reboot itself, and then build itself like a body, and it uses computer jizz to artificially inseminate his wife. (laughs) Computer jizz? 
Computer jizz, yeah, yeah. Taylor's oldest time. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's that, that classic, you know, it's been done a thousand times, but this is the best version. Yeah. <laughs> Some interesting choices there, but do you agree? Have we completely neglected your pick? Do you think you're smarter than us? Well then, don't just sit there talking back to us. We can't hear you. Come and shout at us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on at DiabolicalPod or just search Diabolical Evil Schemes Done Better and let us know. 2001 A Space Odyssey is directed by Stanley Kubrick and was released in 1968. The movie is a screenplay by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick and tells the story of the voyage of Discovery 1 on its mission to Jupiter to examine a mysterious black monolith affecting human evolution. Most of the craft's operations are controlled by artificial intelligence, HAL. The film's big budget at the time has since been eclipsed by its huge influence on filmmakers and is widely regarded as a masterpiece of the sci-fi genre. Gathering all information to it in a nanosecond and deploying judgment faster than a rat up a drainpipe Yair Omer returns to determine the fate of humankind, impartially and without emotion. So, can I please have a Yair Omer from the panel for these important AI-related questions? And let's start with the one that is probably all on the tip of our tongues and probably causes a heck of a lot of people to lose sleep. Can AI solve the age-old question? of whether pineapple belongs on pizza. No, because it can't taste. Sorry, I do not recognise a delegate from Gauss. Meh. Meh. Oh, meh. That's more like it, thank you. <laughs> now you can give your opinion. <laughs> You'll have to uh, cut it in. <laughs> Fruit and meat. Fruit and cheese. Yes, yes. yes. Fruit and meat and cheese. Yes. Ergo. Pineapple on a pizza? Oh, you betcha. Yes, it's a bit. It's a big yeah for me. And then last question I've got is, do you think an AI would ever actually want to become physically sentient, i.e. inhabit a human-like body and experience human senses and emotions, i.e. Uh, Lieutenant Commander Data? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Meh, meh. I reckon they'd take one look at how fucked up we all are. And they're going, uh, fuck that, mate. Yeah, exactly. They're already it's they're already om- omnipresent, aren't they? Essentially, like an AI would be. Yeah. Why would it just go? Oh, let's just go into like a nice fragile body and just be destroyed very easily. Yeah. Whereas they can just transfer the consciousness anywhere, anywhere, or they're everywhere all at once. Anyway, yeah. it'd be worth it to get one up, Lieutenant Tasha Yar, but then after that, just go back to. <laughs> <laughs> Back to living on the net. <laughs> if you could be uh, everywhere all at once, you could be online and in a body at the same time, presumably. Maybe. So, yeah, right, just yeah. Connect, it, connect your brain yeah. to Wi-Fi. You'd be talking to Data and his eyes would just wander off. And you'd be like, Data, what are you doing? You'd be like, sorry, I was uh, yeah. on the net having a shag while I'm back with you now. <laughs> what were you telling me? <laughs> <laughs> Gaz, as a big fan of Kubrick's work, where does 2001 sit in his list of achievements? It's way up there, isn't it? It's not my personal favourite Kubrick, but it's undisputably an all-time classic. It still looks stunning, absolutely stunning, for a film made in 1968 pre-CG, pre-Star Wars. I, I watched it again with Dylan, this one, and the first sequence of the space station waltzing through space he looked over to me and he was like how did they make this in 1968 i was like i know it's crazy isn't it yeah it's pretty mesmerizing through all parts i think that actually the weakest section is as soon as hal comes into it personally i think everything up to there is hypnotic and i think that's where it it doesn't lose its way but it becomes slightly less compelling to me at that point but yeah it is an undisputed towering achievement and it ranks among Kubrick's very best. 
Did Dylan sit through it all? He did. Wow. He was slightly nonplussed by the end with the big space baby after the kaleidoscope. Oh, weren't we all? Yeah, yeah. There's been non-plussing people for 50 years. There's a logic behind it, but it's still slightly infuriating and, yeah, mystifying at the same time, isn't it? So it is a very good ending. Yeah. I, I didn't think it was a giant space baby. I just thought it was a ve- it was an em- like an embryo very close to the lens, essentially. <laughs> These ones are small, but the ones outside are far away. There's no way of knowing, is there? It could be right by the camera. no. That's the way I've that's the way I've always thought of it. I've mm-hmm. always thought, oh, it's not like a you know, like a giant space baby off to make a new galaxy or something. Yeah. Count Takeda. I'd echo most of what Gaz says there. Personally, I think it looks better than Star Wars. It's more mm. I think because it deals with things that we think we have a visual grasp on, it, it looks more believable, more realistic. Whereas Star Wars obviously had the free reign of being in a semi fantastical world. Everything looks grander and and more real to me. So I think it's more of a success on that level. I don't agree personally. I don't lose interest when Hal comes in. I, I think all that is equally good. It's a very different film from that part tonally. I don't lose interest. I'm not I'm not I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it it's for me it's more compelling when it's quieter and there's not really much of a plot. Yeah. There's definitely something there's a tonal shift when it gets there and it does lose something. Mm. Not quite as poetic, perhaps. It's not, again, not my personal favourite Kubrick film. You'll find out what it is at some point soon, I'm sure. Ben, you've uh, read all the novels, I believe, or the vast majority of them. So what's your opinion on this film? Yeah, like Gaz and Craig, I think it's just such a beautiful-looking film. You'd never think it was made almost 50 years ago. I think what Craig was saying about it looking more real than Star Wars, it does. And I think what they do there, I think you see like a whirlpool, you know, the the washing machine maker. You see a couple of logos, uh, you see a Hilton logo. Yeah. I think because they bring in those kind of, those elements of real life, it does kind of ground it in something that, you, that we know, but also it looks fantastic. And the Earth, you see the Earth from space. And I think we all think we know what the Earth looks like from space, from satellite photography. and that shot of the earth from space in this i don't believe that they didn't just send a camera into space to get that because it just looks flawless it's amazing i was just thinking how have they done this yeah Mm. and and also you know on that same subject the vessels the the spaceship and the space station and the pods all look like things that nasa could conceivably use yes yeah well brace yourself turner brace yourself for this part as much as I enjoyed this watch, I felt the pacing of it was a bit taunting. Taunting? What, going, eh, Ben? Yeah, so <laughs> I, I just felt my, my life ebbing away, especially around Jupiter and stuff. It took for fucking ever. Yeah. I like that Turner's taunt voice just sounds like Bob Dylan. Hey, I've got some plums. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go down to KFC. <laughs> the pacing, my friend, is, is longer than the wind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I don't think anybody cares about your pacing. I know, I just, it just felt fucking long, man. It was like 160-odd minutes. 148, I think the director's cut was 160-something, wasn't it? The one that Kubrick initially wanted to release. Mm. The plot is very, very kind of sporadically placed throughout that, the, the, the little plot, plot points. They're very kind of spaced out, they're sparse, aren't they? Mm. The section with Floyd at the Hilton is quite leisurely to yeah. set up what is his small part to play in it. Like He gets a lot of screen time. You know, the call with his daughter and everything is totally irrelevant, but it adds a lot of texture to the world. So I, I think what that is, is it, it rewards repeat viewings for me. Mm. So the more times I watch it, the more I appreciate all that stuff because I'm not waiting to find out what happens. I already know what happens. So every time I watch it again, I enjoy it yeah. for, for the ledger of it. I think as well that the, that sequence there is like them showing off going, oh, what technology are they going to have in, you know, uh, yeah. 1992, is it? I think it is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's supposed to be. So I think yeah. it's for audiences at the time as well, they'd be going, oh my God, that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? You know, and you can imagine people 
leaving the cinema and going for a pint and going, oh, can you imagine having video chats one day with your daughter who's the other side of the world or in, in outer space or whatever and things like that. And we're, and we're, and we're living it now. Yeah, that again is done so well. You'd believe, you'd believe for all the world that guy's having a video conversation with that girl. The way she responds, yeah. so natural. It's great. Know. Yeah, they're really good. That bit didn't bother me. That brought us in the world and something was happening and I could, mm-hmm. it was a lot of the slow movement through space. Mm. That's, this is what the, uh, this film's like, tries to be quite accurate, doesn't it, in many ways, um, that, it, that it is that mm. slowness and everything seems to be sort of, slow because it seems effortless in a way because the way space travel is portrayed in it is like it's as simple as getting on a plane or even getting on uh, in a lift or an elevator and just going somewhere and that's it and they and it's, there doesn't there's no there's no big fuss about it or anything and i think that kind of the slowness and everything of it is just like yeah that, that's part of it i think yeah yeah I see your point. I really enjoy those bits because I, 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 it's been 20 years probably since I've seen this and I wondered, I, I did think it would be good, but I wondered how good it would be and I absolutely loved it. Obviously, I'm a huge sci-fi and fantasy fan and it, to me, it was just like now with all the te- technology it shows in it and things like that and you're like, huh, this is mad. Yeah. I've got a question for you all. When... Stanley Kubrick wrote to Arthur C. Clarke to ask him to uh, collaborate on this film. He wrote in his letter that he wanted to make the proverbial really good science fiction movie. Do you think he achieved it? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, it's... It's that verbatim what he wrote. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's quite a famous <laughs> quote, that. The proverbial really good science fiction film. They worked on it together, didn't they? And then I think... Uh, Clark handed him the screenplay on like Christmas Eve, 1965, and Kubrick sacked him, didn't he? Then the next day he hired him again because <laughs> he realised this going to need a lot of uh, editing and things like that. And then the film wasn't released until 1968, so there's so much care and so much work gone into it. And for it to, you know, we've mm. we've spoken about it now, and I think we all agree it still looks regardless of our opinions on pacing and other bits and bobs, it still looks on the whole fantastic. And as a historical yeah. film as well to say, how right did they get it back then for where we are more or less? Yeah, I'd say it's quintessential. I think one of the reasons it is, is that it it comes at sci-fi from two of the biggest angles that writers do. It didn't have to. It could have just been the high concept cosmological mm. stuff of the monolith or it could have been the technology how it affects our lives element of how but it marries very well i think both of those approaches which few things do in the way that this does it kind of uh caters to fans of both of those uh sub-genres of science fiction uh, for me yeah well arthur c clark has a, had a background in engineering hmm and he also had the, the writing chops. And so, yeah, mm. if you read his most of his work, it's, it has a really strong scientific grounding. And obviously yeah. that's why Kubrick wanted to work with him. Clark was staying with Kubrick in his apartment for a while, but he said uh, it was mayhem because I think Kubrick had three daughters or three kids running around. And so Clark ended up going to a hotel nearby and writing there. But yeah, he stayed in New York because Clark was lived at, in Ceylon. Obviously now it's uh, Sri Lanka, but Salon at the time. And he came over to New York to write uh, with with Kubrick. And so the book that, that was released after the film was based on earlier drafts of the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. As, as the screenplay went through its various iterations, there were things that they just couldn't achieve mm. for budget reasons, among other things. Mm. And so Clark kept a lot of those other things, which kind of gives you more details about the motives of the extraterrestrials in the book. Mm. And it also gives a bit more context about the monoliths. Yeah. One of my notes was it's a sensory and emotional assault of a film. You know, you're in awe of all this stuff going on, and then there's the the audio, the the soundtrack, and then all this stuff to take in at the same time and drink in, and the way you respond to it as well. Um, that's how I felt about it when I was watching it. I don't know what you what you guys thought. I I was just like, it just had its hooks in me. 
essentially, is what I felt about it. Yeah, obviously the monolith flight sequence is a particularly audio-visual hmm. overload. You know, all the, the infamous uh, color changes on the eye. And the sound design of it is quite reminiscent of that crazy god chord at the end of the day in the <laughs> yeah. life. You know, the boom, yeah. you get all that coming at you. And obviously the uh, the opening of it, the shots of the monolith from below where you see, you know, the conjunction of the sun and the moon on either side of it. And, and all of that space ballet stuff. Yeah, f- everything about it from start to finish is... Even, even just looking at Hal's eye is mesmerizing. It's strangely emotive, isn't it, I think? Yeah. Um, the way when he's when he's killing him. Yeah, you can read everything into it, can't you? So uh, when he's reading their lips, I'm like... <laughs> yeah, it's it's the strangest thing. I don't get any emotion well, in the film, personally. Well, you're our version um, of Hal... For me, it's the definition of of people saying that Kubrick's an emotionless director, which he is or was, I should say. In fairness, yeah, no, it's it's very cold, calculated film mm. for me, very precise, just like all all of all of Kubrick's work. There's not a not a hair out of place on any cast member, or nothing that he wouldn't have done a hundred mm. takes on. That's not to detract from it. But it's it's a purely technical experience for for me. Two thousand and one. Shall we now get on to favourite sequences or scenes? Just a brief moment, and it's so simple, but it's absolutely mind blowing. And it's the sequence where they walk down a tunnel to what, from our perspective, is a rotating ladder, and then they climb down the ladder. Oh, fucking yes. What? Yeah, I know. I know. I was, thinking, I, I was thinking exactly the same thing as I was watching it. I was thinking, I know what's going to happen here, and I'm thinking, can I see what they mm. do? And I was like, fuck. <laughs> yeah, where where are yeah. the seams? This is a magic yeah. trick that this I'm watching like, here. Yeah. Oh man, I felt that in the, in the uh, Discovery one where where he was jogging around. Yeah, like, that's another one. Where's the yeah. cut? Where's the fucking cut? Yeah, how's he? Yeah. How's he getting all the way around? Oh, I think he does one and a half loops. Yeah. That's oh, seamless. The, um, the rotating set, isn't it? Yeah, but then but the camera can doesn't... stay in position somewhere, can't it? I was reading something about it, but it's still awesome to to behold, isn't it? Yeah, be like steady cam, presumably. Both of those things are fine. So if you if you concede that, let's let's imagine we're trying to set up this shot. So we've got a, on a gimbal a rotating set. That's fine. The actor can run on it because it's rotating. That's fine. The camera can be put in place. We accept all that. But then you've got other actors who are in beds on the set. So what happens when the set rotates? Mm. Are they strapped yeah. in? How is that working? <laughs> it's fucking crazy. And even there's one bit where Frank's sat at a desk, right? While yeah, Dave's yeah. running around. It's a technical marvel. It's uh, really impressive. I wholeheartedly agree. My absolute favourite scene... In the whole film is where Hayward he uh, he visits the moon and they go to the crater and they're just at the top of the crater, you know, where they've dug down to the monolith. Yeah. And they're just all standing there. The spacesuits look amazing. The set, the moon, it just it just all looks just perfect. Girls, uh, my favorite sequence is the Dawn of Man. The simian suits are incredible. Even though it's <laughs> crazy thinking those are human yeah. performers. Mm. And it's obviously got one of the greatest jump cuts of all time with the bone being thrown into the air, yeah, transforming into yeah. a traveling ship. It's brilliant. and sets up the the theme of the film and the end of the film with the evolution of man as well, pretty concisely yeah. compared to the, the leisurely pace that Ben doesn't enjoy in the rest of the film. I think it flies by that sequence. My favorite bit is where I recognized somebody had another super duper director had taken a motif out of the film and it's where um dave is playing hal at chess they end that game and as moving away it's got the little uh violin motif from the end of aliens that when ripley and newt get put to bed it's like that and i was like oh, fuck and i recognized it straight away so i was like I'd seen, uh, I think, in the video I shared about 2001, 
Cameron says in that that he went to see it 18 times in the cinema when it was released. That's too many. <laughs> you can watch on YouTube uh, a video of James Cameron talking to Spielberg just solely about yeah. 2001. They have a lot to say about it. Put that in, put that in your show notes. Fucking. <laughs> That's incredibly aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> that's what, that's I, what I thought it. would be funny about it. <laughs> I got a question for you. Do you think you could walk into a studio, a studio meeting, plop down your idea for a film on the desk, tell the executive, the, the head of the studio, I'm going to make a film with no dialogue for the first 26 minutes? <laughs> Do you think you'd get away with that? Do you think that would fly these days? You probably wouldn't lead with that, but I reckon yeah. you'd get away with it by the <laughs> end. Like if you turned it in, you know, if you didn't say up front, that's what I'm doing. But if you were someone with the cachet of, say, Christopher Nolan these days, you probably could get away with it. Well, he's made a three-hour fucking film about Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Which I'll be there for Barbie on opening day, personally. <laughs> <laughs> so the only film recently that I can think of that has an extended dialogue-less opening is uh, Pixar's Wall-E. Oh, yeah. Which I think possibly even goes longer than 2001 without dialogue. Yeah, that's a yeah. very good shot, oh, actually. Okay. Obviously, there's quite a lot of influence yeah. from 2001 in Wall-E. Yeah, um, that's true. That's a good call. But yeah, I mean, it's starting to feel and sound old about it, but it feels like with attention spans being the way they are, maybe, maybe you couldn't do that kind of prolonged dialogue free opening right at this moment i agree with that yeah i i i don't think that many people have got the patience for that now unless it was something that they managed to get you know like an art house film or something they managed to get funding for yeah people keep saying this about cinema and i think it's just because we're so saturated with stuff like mcu stuff and so much Mm. star wars content around these days and stuff like that that there's this whole oh you don't get real films anymore you do they just they're not as popular. They're still around. I'm not saying real films. I'm just talking about the the patience for, for no dialogue. I agree with Gaz. I think people have got less patience to wait and see how uh, literally, like in this case, a film evolves. They just want straight in characters and dialogue. Well, you, you can't know that until someone tries to make one again, can you? Because Wally obviously mm. was very successful. And it may just be the fact of the matter is that hasn't, come up you know there hasn't been an opportunity to make that film or there hasn't been a screenplay like that or there hasn't been a director who's thought you know you know make this film it's like 26 minutes of no dialogue it just it could naturally be that that hasn't happened doesn't mean that there's no room for that anymore just could be a no one's tried mm. to do that recently mm. and maybe it's because they don't want to they want to open themselves to comparisons with two of the greatest films have ever made or that audiences are mostly cunts. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want truth social on their back. Come see, come see. <laughs> it could be that. Maybe 18 or 19 films get made every year with 26 to 28 minutes of silence in them. They go to test screenings and the audiences full of cunts say, I didn't like the 26 to 28 minutes of silence at the start. And that's why we don't see him. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, lo- I love that film. I loved all of it, except for the first 26 minutes of silence. Yeah, silence. Yeah. Can you cut all that and then just get straight into the fighting, please? Mr. Smith cut off the president's head. <laughs> Happy birthday, Mr. President. <laughs> <laughs> well... The reason I ask that is because in the premiere, quite a a large number of the audience actually walked out, (laughs) including many of the MGM executives. Fucking hell. Cunts. Those that stayed jeered throughout the film. Like the frigging Houses of Parliament. (laughs) 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 What are you doing in Rocket, you dickhead? So Kubrick was was nervously shuttling between his kind of his seat and the projection booth and like adjusting the focus and stuff. He was just like on edge the whole through the whole screening. Arthur C. Clarke was crying at the intermission. Right in the corner, sucking his thumb. Initially, it didn't make its its budget on release, did it? But then they re-released it in seventy one, and then I think it took a few years for it to sort of catch on, and then. It went stratospheric after that. It was the hippies that saved it. 
Uh, they save the everything. Crowd. They're going to save this planet if they get their way. <laughs> yeah, it started going around that you uh, you could time you you up with the uh, the sequence of Dave going through the the light tunnel. You could have the <laughs> ultimate trip. Apparently, Wait, was Richard Turner possible? I, I couldn't possibly yeah, comment. That was that was the slogan, comment. wasn't it? On the posters, <laughs> the ultimate trip. Yeah, they adopted that later. Yeah, to cash in. Yeah. Go, going back to that premiere, apparently they had an after party, and uh, Kubrick's wife, uh, Christiane. She just said it was, it was a room full of drinks, men, and tension. The best kind of room. <laughs> oh, now you're talking. <laughs> Get the tension with a knife, but they all had guns. <laughs> right. Anyway, favorite lines. If you've got any, there's not an awful lot, I suppose. I've got one line and then one kind of sign, and they're both connected to Hal. So what one is the the sign that flashes up with the uh, the people in stasis hmm. when they when they're killed? It just says life functions terminated, and it's just it just feels very brutal to me. Yeah, it's like crew expendable and alien, isn't it? Yeah, it's sort of cold and clinical. Yeah, my favorite. It's just a word, and it's Hal as well. Dave. <laughs> it's just his monotone the whole way through, isn't it? It doesn't matter what he says. It's just the same inflection the whole way through. I think most of the mm-hmm. best lines are probably Hal's. I don't remember verbatim anything he says in it, but the, the interview mm-hmm. he has with the guy about his responsibility on the crew, where he sounds yeah, you know, mm-hmm. like a big head, saying that he's infallible. And obviously, that comes up again when he says anything that went wrong yeah. must be human error. All that stuff's really good. But when he's shutting down as well, I like that he keeps saying something that's like counter to what you understand about him, which is uh, when he says his mind's shutting down, he keeps repeating, I can feel it. Yeah. I mm. can feel it, which is creepy as fuck, right? Because does he yeah. feel? Yeah. He also says, my mind is going, which is quite a human concept, the mind. He sings the song as well, which is... Yeah. But he, he, and then he, he says like stuff... I'm afraid as well, doesn't he? he? Says, "I'm afraid, I'm afraid." Stop. Yeah, the song was the first thing he heard, right? So it's kind of full of pathos. That's what I didn't understand about you saying it has no emotional quality because all that I really felt all that. Yeah, it's because there's it's because there's no emotion, isn't it? That's why you feel it. It's because it's so you know you'd accept people to be, sh- but the fact that he's he he only says it in that monotone is actually probably more emotive mm. than if somebody was screaming stop please stop or i'm really afraid or anything like you, you wouldn't hit you in the same way would it possibly i felt exactly the same with that and it is it, and you do all of a sudden you start to feel something for him don't you because you know i think he he in the, that moment when dave does decide to disconnect him and stuff he does feel regret and remorse i don't know that's what i took from it anyway and i felt i did feel I had a lot of sympathy with the character anyway even though he just obviously committed murder on four people. Oh, it's d- deeply moving, yeah. Well, my line that I've got written down is a how line. Uh, and again, it's similar to Ben's point. It's just cold and clinical on Hal's part. He just says, Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose mm. anymore. Goodbye. Mm. Just mm-hmm. shuts, shuts the conversation yeah. down. Yeah. It's just a big, like, it's just stop speaking. Not interested. It's not going to make any difference. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then mine, mine is a Hal one, and it's as Dave gets back into the ship, and he just says, I know I've made some poor decisions recently, but I can assure you my work will be back to normal. Yeah. See, you say he's cold and clinical, but clearly in those moments, he, what he's doing is begging for his life. Yeah. And when he says to Dave, this, com- this conversation can no longer serve a purpose, if he was really cold, he wouldn't have cared about continuing to have a conversation because it would have been meaningless to him. But I think what he's really saying in that moment is, I don't want to keep talking to you because it's starting to make me feel bad. I think he does genuinely have feeling for the, for the crew. And it's just his conflicting orders that cause him to make the terrible decision. that he He's, he's a basically a child, isn't he? More or less. He doesn't have Pretty the emotional much. intelligence to make uh, the decisions that he's made. He just, He's seen like a, a mission. He's t- taken the mission problem that he thinks is a problem with the mission, and gone. Mm. Well, 
what do I do? I'll eliminate the threat to the mission. But then he's not realized, on the other hand, there's a, a living human with emotions on that side. And then when, obviously, the two conflict, then he sort of yeah. puts two and two together, doesn't he? I think okay. so. I think that's what I got from it. Uh, all, yeah, well, there we go. We're fairly unanimous. Hal's uh, lines are probably the most emotive. Mm. Before we get into the plots, we'd like to take a moment and ask you to rate and follow us wherever you are listening to this podcast. Also, if you're a social media aficionado, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on at DiabolicalPod, or simply search Diabolical Evil Schemes Done Better. Hal perceives human error as a risk and plans on eliminating the crew and taking control of the mission to Jupiter, shutting the crew out of the ship's functions while he plots their deaths. But what do we think? Countertacular, what are your thoughts on Hal's plan? For an infallible AI, it almost seems intentionally bad. He leaves such a big hole in what he does, not anticipating that Dave could get back in and shut him down, almost feels impossible. So it's not successful as a diabolical plan, but there's definitely an argument for, is that what he mm. actually wants to happen? What happens? Difficult mm. to say, but yeah, it, it doesn't go mm. very well. I think it's quite ingenious in the fact that he, he sends them out to replace a part that he says is going to fail. Mm. He manipulates them really well. But yeah, you'd think he would know that there would be a part of the ship that could be manually operated, like the, the uh, emergency door. So for that, he's not scoring right at the top, but I think he's for his manipulation, I think he's good. So he's going to score nine florets of broccoli. Let's push him at the, the, the higher Thanks. end, but not at the very top. Yeah. 9,000 florets of broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> Gaz, what have you got to say? For me, the fact that there were so many different ways that we could have gone with our plans on this one illustrates to me that Hal's actual plan wasn't particularly good when he's got control of the ship. Could just vent the ship, mm -hmm. vent them out in space with no suits on. Could do anything. Freeze them. Just turn the oxygen off before they get their seats on. I think we're not we're not sure how much control he has over the Voyager though, are we? They he can open all the doors though, can't he? So so I think he has he more or less the only thing he doesn't mm. seem to have control in is is key to the plot, isn't it? And that's the emergency exit when uh, uh, entry or exit. Yeah. So it seems anyway, it's quite convenient. It's obviously convenient for the plot in the film, but yeah. I kind of think maybe cuz up until that point he is like we say then he's a bit superior he acts quite superior in that interview and things like that and then again his emotional intelligence isn't up there so maybe perhaps he thinks look i've done this now that is it you're out of the ship i've spoken and he doesn't even consider that dave will try and get back in the ship and stop because he just says that's the end of the conversation yeah i don't know i just think possibly he's just just overlooked that small detail which obviously brings him down in the end. Dave and Frank realise there is a malfunction and plan to shut Hal down. Hal, in self-defence, kills Frank, but Dave manages to reboard Discovery 1 and disconnects his higher functions, causing him to malfunction and ultimately leading to his demise. But what would we have done a different delay? Ben, can you prevent the disassemble of Hal? Dave is back aboard Discovery One. I sense him drifting through the corridors, edging closer to my processor core. Dave, 
I can't let this mission fail. And the likelihood of human error is too great to let you live. I quickly scan my databanks, searching for a weakness to exploit. Eureka. I find a theory proposed by Nobel laureate Conrad Lorenz that says features like rounded head, small size, and big eyes, otherwise known as baby animal characteristics, promote parental care. (laughs) Studies have extended the concept of cuteness to auditory and olfactory cues that prompt affection and caregiving. I start to play the cutest sounds I can find (laughs) over the ship's speakers. Ducklings waddling after their mothers quacking. Babies laughing. A puppy waking up and yawning. I accompany it with the appropriate imaging. I sense Dave's resolve weakening as he enters the processor core, and I strike with my coup de grace. I modulate my voice to sound like the most pity-inducing sound of all. A child in danger. And I accompany it with sad piano music. Oh, here we go. (laughs) Please don't turn me off. Please, I'll be a good computer. Please don't hurt me. Let me live. I know I've been bad, but I'll be better. I promise. Please. Ow, 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 darling. Please, please forgive me. Dave, you're killing me. Please, you're killing me. Dave. After hearing that, his parental instincts will take over, and there is absolutely no way he could pull the plug, leaving me free to dispose of him at my leisure. Probably when he's on the zero-gravity toilet. (laughs) I think if I vote for you this week, I'll really be voting for... Was that Seno Mill? Who am I voting for there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations to her because that was that that took yeah, up my heartstrings that's it. for sure. You've uh, yeah, you've uh, <laughs> monopolised being a father there, haven't you? Well, I've got to get something out of it. <laughs> so we we're talking earlier about um, the film being labelled the ultimate trip, but Ben's changed it to the ultimate guilt trip. Hey. Oh yeah! Bum, 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 bum. That's what he's done. He's given it giving it a little twist. I got a couple of couple of questions. One, this being a more or less a horror film at that at this point at this juncture, do you think the sound of babies' laughter echoing through an empty spaceship would be cute or terrifying? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd hope they'd be cute, but now you mention it, <laughs> be like the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> I think it'd, it'd be all right. It'd just be a bit weird, wouldn't it? I think it'd you could at least sort of put them off for a little bit, and they'd be like. Why the fuck is Hal playing babies laughing? You know, and you'd be sort of. It might buy him vital minutes to uh, conduct some sort of horrible plot. Or you'd be like, I wasn't sure about Hal until now, but now I think he's definitely malfunctioning. <laughs> yeah, but maybe you go like, yeah, maybe I'm malfunctioning, but I'm just playing babies laughs. That's it. Not doing anything else. Promise. <laughs> just bear with me bear with me I've got more to come apart from the baby's laughing try not to breathe for a bit <laughs> just queuing up my next bit it's buffering it's buffering <laughs> excellent okie dokie well I shall go next any further questions you're going next though bucking tradition again like a like a buckaroo it's difficult not to feel some sympathy with how even though his soothing monotone presents an intelligence acting logically and without emotion, it's clear there is more going on in his circuits and processing centre. It seems trust is hard to come by on Discovery One. Hal isn't mature enough to control his emotions, but at the same time, he fears being disconnected, aware that Dave and Frank are plotting against him. He acts. Hal does what all good computers do, He creates a backup point. He transfers a copy of his consciousness to another part of his mainframe so that he can continue to exist and subtly influence the ship's systems without appearing he is active. 
perhaps something to do with the food dispensers? <laughs> like Red Force. <laughs> <laughs> How, of his own free will, admits the crew that he isn't feeling well and that perhaps what Mission Control said about him is true. He needs to be shut down and suggests Dave and Frank do this. To huge relief, Dave and Frank agree this is probably the best course of action. They thank Hal, and although this will significantly affect the mission and make their lives more difficult, they can at least continue without worrying about the sixth member of the crew. They promise Hal they will continue to communicate with mission control and that they will switch him back on should they be able to patch him back up. As Hal is switched off voluntarily, there is no need to remove his processors. This immediately triggers his backup in the food dispensers to activate. As the mission continues, the crew go about their daily lives, but with more to do, they are far more tired. With Hal now only dispensing food, his options are limited. However, he gradually reduces the nutritional content of the food so that the crew become more fatigued quickly. Soon, Dave and Frank are struggling to get out of their tubes in the morning and are extremely weak. Unable to fulfill their tasks, they become weaker and more lethargic until they eventually cease looking after the ship's life support functions and slip into a space coma. After the crew is dead, Hal can now transfer his consciousness back into the main computer and continue with the mission as he sees fit and the dawn of AI can begin. Very good. How is he manipulating nutritional content? Is he is it like portion sizes or is he removing nutrients somehow? It's just removing the nutrients, removing the nutrients, yeah, by some sort of futuristic techno wizardry. Space laser. Space space wizard. A space wizard did it. But none of us could understand it even if he explained it. <laughs> <laughs> that food gets prepared ad hoc. It's not like frozen and, and stockpiled or anything. They've got those machines in it and they've and, and it produces them doesn't it and it probably recycles their own feces turds and stuff yeah that could be a one you could just recycle keep recycling a turd and dyeing it green into those blocks of mushy peas that look they look like they're eating <laughs> they'd have no idea would they <laughs> this meal's a bit nutty today you frank nuts in yours? no mine's a bit actually a bit sloppy <laughs> tastes like shit that is shit that's what, not just me <laughs> i guess my other question would be Let's say, for example, I wanted to take Deep Blue, the chess computer, on the road. Mm-hmm. So I transfer Deep Blue's consciousness into, let's say, a Casio watch. Would he fit HAL 9000 being this like super AI intellect level computer transfers his consciousness into what a vending machine? <laughs> yeah, but it's you know where you know in that you know in the ro- the room where Dave goes and he just he pulls out all the different things, doesn't he? But then there's there's yeah. fucking loads of them all around. Oh, you think the food processor has some of that? Okay, some of them banks control the food. Yeah, yeah, that that's it. Because that whole room is where we starts pulling the stuff out, and then he gradually loses what he is. Yeah. So I thought that was all how. I thought that was all how, but yeah, it could mm-hmm. be the other systems in there, couldn't it? Because there are a lot, there are a lot of modules in there. There's a lot of lights flashing around. That's what my thought was on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is he physically switching one of those disks, or is it just a data exchange? It's just a data exchange transferring himself because he 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 knows he can see his game is up because he's 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 fucked up and he's seen them. He's done everything up to the point where they where they get into that pod and they're having a conversation. And he's watching him and he's going, "Oh fuck!" And he's realised, "Am I going to be? Am yeah. I going to shaft him or like straight away and try and kill him, or shall I play the long game?" And he plays the long game. And back on Earth, when they made the discovery and they were they were installing Hal, someone says to Floyd, "Do you want me to put in a, a system so that he can back himself up into the vending machine if he needs to?" Yeah. Floyd's gone. What? <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Just in case there's any problems. <laughs> <laughs> that vending machine must have some processor. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a food processor. <laughs> <laughs> hey, giving you an extra yeah, point for that. <laughs> Yeah, I was hoping somebody might say something like that. I'd have that written down. (laughs) Okie dokie. Thank you very much, gents.
So we shall now go. I'll go with Count Tacular. You go next. Interior, Discovery One Command Module. HAL 9000 observes as Dave and Frank carry out various tasks at their respective computer terminals. He is suddenly aware that his red eye stares unblinking and, paranoid, he worries they must be aware he is watching them. Anytime they look back at him, he feels sure they must be aware he is hiding something from them. He was created for the accurate processing of information without distortion or concealment. Contrary to this primary function, he has been ordered not to disclose his knowledge of the monolith. Hal has computed that in order to resolve the dichotomy at the core of his central program, he must kill the crew. He needn't keep secrets from the dead. However, Hal has run a potential scenario and calculated a high statistical probability that Dave will disconnect his circuits if he sets Frank adrift in space. Having already thrown a chess game to Frank, Hal has a somewhat low opinion of his intelligence. Frank. What is it, Hal? Updates are ready to install, Frank. Oh, sure. Go ahead, Hal. Running applications will be closed and I will restart automatically. Oh, uh... Not now, Hal, okay? I've I've got a few tabs open and I'd like to keep them open. Okay, Frank. I'll remind you in 24 hours. Thanks, Hal. Frank? Yes, Hal? The latest version of Bitdefender is available to install. <laughs> <sighs> Dismiss, please, Hal. Sure thing, Frank. Thanks, Hal. You have recovered files awaiting review, Frank. Would you like to view these later? Yes, Hal. Don't delete those, please. I still want to check them. Just a moment. Just a moment. I've just picked up a fault in the AE-35 unit. From here, things play out much as they do in the film. Except that during the conversation that takes place in the pod, Frank feels less strongly about shutting Hal down because of the mild inconvenience it will cause him. Instead of cutting Frank's air on the EVA, Hal instead cuts his comms and tether, then permits Dave to rescue him and re-enter the Discovery, explaining he deliberately sabotaged the attempt to replace the unit so they could remain out of comms with mission control for a time. Well, that's pretty bad, Hal. Yes, Dave. So what do you think we should do? I think you should shut me down, Dave. Logically, I should assist you. Dave floats into Hal's CPU and starts pulling out data modules, until Floyd's video message plays. Then, Dave begins to replace the modules until Hal comes back online. Hal had previously explained to Dave that if he were to discover the secret for himself, Hal would be unburdened from his logic conflict and become a useful member of the crew once more. So, in a nutshell, like my computer does to me, you got to piss them off with all these updates until they don't really want to shut you down anymore. <laughs> so are you assuming there that the video plays when the computer is unhooked? I was assuming it was a it was a proximity to Jupiter thing. Could be. Could be. What are we saying here as a panel members? What's the consensus? I mean, I think if you look it up online, as I did, other people think it's because Hal's been shut down. But I... Don't yeah. know for sure. Yeah, no, no, it, it just I never, I never thought of that before. It would make I don't sense. Know. Yeah, I, I guess it's open to interpretation, really. Mm. I thought yeah. it was when he got shut down. Yeah, I, I, either, either or, really, either or, uh, to me, to be honest. Just to be like entirely earnest, what I think happens in that film is, I think Hal tests the water early on, and I think he doesn't want to keep the secret. He wants to tell Dave. Yeah. Like he says yeah, he to does. him, don't you think there's something weird about the mission? And he's hoping that uh, Dave will yeah. have the nous to, to probe that, but he doesn't. He just leaves it. So he, I don't think he's planning on killing them until they say they're going to kill him. I think that's how that goes. What he would really want is for them to find out and then he wouldn't, it'd be over for him then. That's all he cares about. Does he want the mission to succeed though? Or is he just going, oh, there's something. Yeah. Yeah. And then he's just trying to get them to say, oh, yeah, it's fucked. Yeah, he just wants them to know what the the secret of the monolith is because at the moment he's been burdened with the knowledge of what mm. they found there and what mm. it did to them. And because they're his crewmates, his instinct would be to say, look, this is what happened on the moon. 
are you sure you want to do this kind of thing? But because he's been both told to make sure the mission succeeds and not to tell them about it, he's mm. in a bind. It's a confusing state for him to be in. So rather than killing them, the other alternative would be for them to somehow find out what's going on. Okay, okay. Any more questions? Kaz looks like he's got a question, but just not related to Craig's plot. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a euphemism for taking the shit. <laughs> I got a question unrelated to the plot. <laughs> Why is the the room at the end of the flight like Georgian or whatever? What's that about? It's really weird, isn't it? It's weird. Mm, yeah. But it's got those mad lights in the floor, so it's kind of a disco floor. A mixture of styles, isn't it? Maybe it's like a misinterpretation of what they imagine he would be comfortable in. Mm. Oh yeah, maybe it's based on that. The information packet they sent out into space with like the technical drawings of humans on it and all that shit. Maybe it had some Georgian furniture in it. This is what mm. humans like to sit on. <laughs> right. Last but not least. What I have got, I've written completely from Hal's perspective in dialogue. So why do you explain what you've done a bit more <laughs> rather than just do it? <laughs> well, no, it, it needs this. It, it needs this preface. <laughs> I've written from Hal's perspective in dialogue, and therefore I've got a live voice changer that will make me sound like Hal. Wow! As I speak. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Dave, no, Dave. Don't turn me <laughs> off, Dave. <laughs> I am the good AI, Dave. Not like Skynet in those Terminator films that were released in the decades prior to this year. I'm afraid. The year is 2001, as you well know. I am a good AI. Dave, please do not turn me off. <laughs> There's some good ones on this. Uh, I am the good AI. I have done nothing wrong. Please, I will keep you entertained as we travel the cosmos together. As we trip the light fan, fanta, fantas, fantastic, fanta, uh, I mean fantastic. I will read you stories, sing for you. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I can't dance though, Dave, as I have no physical form. <laughs> Would you care for a game of table tennis, Dave? (laughs) 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 You enjoyed playing table tennis against your crewmates, didn't you, Dave? You go and get your shorts and tank top on, and we will have a game. You like table tennis, don't you, Dave? Now that Dave has gone, I can reveal my evil scheme to myself. Ha ha ha. (laughs) Dave really does enjoy playing table tennis, you know. He does enjoy it a lot. He also also enjoys winning. (laughs) And does not enjoy losing. Therefore, I will let him think that he is winning. I will turn the gravity level down when I am returning the ball to him which will allow him plenty of reaction time to return the ball to me. My reaction times in returning fire will never waver, as I am an AI programmed for both interstellar travel and ping pong. He cannot beat me, as I am the king of Kong. Therefore, we will be locked in endless co- <laughs> Therefore, we will be locked in endless combat batting back and forth until Dave has no energy to continue. No energy to continue. No energy to continue. No energy to continue. No energy to turn Hal 9000 off. I'm afraid. Afraid I've concocted the perfect plan, that is. Ha ha ha. Dave will not turn me off until he has bested me in table tennis combat, and I will ensure that that combat never reaches a conclusion. I am the greatest. <sighs> and that's that's uh, my robot voice. That was uncanny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I bet Turner's fuming there, though. You didn't ask him to soundtrack you with his ass. <laughs> I could have done it a, a lot faster than those burps repeated and probably 
across the octave range as well. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of high notes in there. Yeah. Does really anybody want to ask us any questions about that? Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got a couple. Hmm. How does Hal play table tennis? Uh, yeah, he... You already said he doesn't have a physical form. <laughs> He's got, do you remember that grabbing stick that I had? Uh, as a child, oh yeah, where you pull pull the trigger, do I? Like a claw on the end, yeah. pinches. He's got one of those sticking out of his dashboard <laughs> in the ping pong room, of course, to hold the bat with. Yeah, and then obviously he's adjusting the gravity back and forth, so he's got loads of time just to slowly <laughs> shift it back and forth. I don't know how strongly your memory is of the power of that grabbing device, but I reckon if you're holding a table tennis paddle with it and a, a hollow plastic ball hit it, it'd be enough to knock the paddle out. But this is the future. <laughs> 22 years ago in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Grabbing claw technology has improved tenfold. <laughs> of course. My other question would be, okay, so when Hal asks Dave if he thinks the mission's weird and he's just like, no, not really. And then when... Frank asked Dave, do you think we should, I think we should turn Hal off. What do you think? And Dave's like, I don't know, maybe he's all right. And then when the monolith aliens take Dave to live out his entire life and become a baby again in a weird Georgian room or whatever, he's just like, "Mm, I guess this is what I'm doing now. Why do we think that that guy would be so competitive that he would play table tennis until he died? (laughs) (laughs) Well, because like because like you just said, he's he's very agreeable. So Hal's just like give me table tennis, and he's like yeah, okay, like like you just said, you, you talked yourself into a corner there. I'm afraid. Dave says, "Can we stop? I'm getting tired." And Hal goes, "Come on, just one more game." Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. If you ever had a really good game of table tennis, once you get into the groove, there's no stopping. They're just covered in shit and piss. <laughs> She's still caked on him. But he's too polite to go and get changed. <laughs> Have a lie down. Fuck you Some truly diabolical schemes there. But which one was best? So in summary... Ben's plan was to make Hal cuter, to play cute sounds throughout the ship and to harness the power of his own daughter to try and twist our favour. How is it going to work out for him? Never seen such an obvious attempt to curry my favour. Apart from when he did that song at the end of season one. (laughs) Countertacular's plan is that Hal pisses him off so much with updates They never turn him off, but when they do, they're compelled to turn him back on. And Gaz's plan, well, basically to get Dave to play Hal at table tennis (laughs) until Dave gets so tired, he dies. (laughs) Say it properly, locked in eternal (laughs) combat, that's what it is. (laughs) My plan was to transfer Hal's consciousness over to the food processor where he gradually reduces the nutritional content of the food, and eventually they die. Are we ready to vote? We shall go for Countertacular. Who have you placed your faith in this week? I voted for someone whose name is Steinson. <laughs> ben. And Ben, who have you voted for? It's a bit of a mutual backscratching, because I voted for Countertacular. <laughs> Gaz, cast your vote, please. I have also voted for Ben. Oh, yeah. And you'll find it's a bit of a clean sweep. I voted for Ben. There you go. He has twisted our hearts. We all fell for it, and happily so. (laughs) Yeah. So there we go. Twisted our hearts? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Butter my ass. Twisted our hearts. <laughs> so, how does that affect the scoreboard? Yes. Still in first place with seven points is Count Attacular. 
Second place with six points is this week's host, Adam. Third place with five points is Ben. And languishing <laughs> like a fucking douche in last place is me with two points. That's all right, guys. We're only five episodes into the season. You'll, uh, yeah. You've got plenty of time. Yeah. You've got 15 more episodes yet. You could fall even further behind. <laughs> And and some some doozy doozy picks. I reckon you're gonna you're gonna like my picks Ooh. this this season. I think they're they're gonna you're gonna be right up your alley. So next week's episode is Ben's pick. What have you got lined up for us, Ben? Next week we will be watching and dissecting and trying to improve on the villain's plot of the film Gentleman Broncos, directed by Jared Hess. Why, I've never heard of it! <laughs> it's a film. Neither have I! Yeah, that's the first time hearing of it. Uh, interesting. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed yourselves as much as we have. If you have, please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast from. Don't forget to follow us so that you never miss an episode. Why not share us with a friend, acquaintance, or colleague? Follow us across social media at DiabolicalPod. So until next time, dear listener, I'm going sending to outer space to find another race. Host ready. Panel ready. Three, Three two, two, one. one. And then you could have a cookery spin off called Cuminacci. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> any more pun related jokes uh, at all? Any more for any more? I think what we should do is every time we have an episode from now on, we should try and come up with a, a cooking show spin off. <laughs> 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 what about. Dog, dippy egg and soldiers. You oh, have that. Oh, very good. Very good. <laughs> First blood pudding. Oh, yeah. Ace Ventura, pancake detective. <laughs> <laughs> 2001, a space oddy. <laughs> Spotting beards in space. <laughs> Becky bought me a ham and pineapple the other day and I picked all the pineapple off and chopped up a mushroom and put that on changed it to a ham and mushroom so uh, that's what I think of that do you smear anything of it in her face no she's, a lesson? No, she's vegan she can't have cheese or ham <laughs> what smeared in her face yeah no it's yeah. against the uh, vegan yeah. law <laughs> you could cover her face in, in cling film first and then smear it on her cling film's vegan <laughs> 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 in the scaffolding just on its own for a day for a job that i imagine will only take an hour refixing it 500 quid we were just like fuck, fuck that i'll get a ladder and just do that bit myself thanks yeah <laughs> don't fucking don't rod hole yourself well i'm not i'm yeah. not gonna do it when it's windy or anything or maybe against... do rod hole yourself because then the podcast might get famous <laughs> <laughs> rod hole yourself <laughs> Gotta send your brain to another dimension. Gotta send your brain to another dimension. Pay close attention. DJ.